Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Uh, good morning. My name is Sung. I'm a covenant member here at The Well. Um, I am privileged to serve as one of the shepherds at uh, the North Central CG. Um, I also serve in the setup team and the well kids. Um, Today we will be reading John chapter 14, verses 1 and 3, and Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, Well family. How are you? Try it again. How are you? There we go. Hey, happy post-Thanksgiving. You woke up from your turkey coma. You showed up to worship. So that means more crowns for you in heaven. Amen. Now, the 9 o'clock crew, they were here a little bit earlier, which means they woke up earlier, so they get a few more crowns than you. But still, everybody gets crowns. Everybody wins, right? Amen. Hey, uh, today we are kicking off a four-week series in Advent. And just to remind us, Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. In, In Advent, we celebrate the birth of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That word Advent is just that Latin word that means arrival. And that Advent focuses on Christ's first arrival, and it focuses on his second arrival, and why that is such good news for you and for me and for us today. Advent has four themes that it kind of highlights and accents for Christ and the work that he did. And those four themes are hope, peace, love, and joy. And I believe that Christ perfectly embodied these four themes of Advent. In fact, these four themes find their fulfillment in Christ himself. Hope, peace, joy, and love, right? And I believe that these four themes are actually the deepest longing of the human heart, right? The the deepest longing of your heart is not finding the the best deal you can on Black Friday or Cyber Monday, right? That the best... The greatest hope you have in your human heart is for deep and abiding hope, lasting peace, deep love, and sustaining joy. That the deepest need of your heart and my heart is hope, peace, joy, and love. And so the question I want us to think about this morning as we kick off an Advent series is this. How does the arrival of Christ give us hope for today? Like, how does Jesus's second coming give us hope for not only today, but for the world to come? 
right? Think about this, that the, um, for us, the new year, the calendar year turns over from December 31st to January 1, and we celebrate a brand new calendar year. But the, the worldwide church, particularly the church that leans maybe a little more liturgical, their new year calendar actually begins today that they actually begin the brand new church year focusing on the advent of Christ, focusing on his second coming. Why? Why would the church begin their brand new year focusing on Jesus's return? It's because they know that his return and the hope we have in him should change how we live in the present. That our hope for the future should change how we live here and now. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Creation and Fall, says this, the church of Christ bears witness to the end of all things. It lives from the end. It thinks from the end. It acts from the end. And it proclaims its message from the end. In other words, how the story ends shapes how we should live our lives today. Right? Think about this. When you go to a movie theater, I know that's rare these days because we can stream everything, right? But when you go to a movie theater, you can show up to the movie 20 minutes late. Why? Because there's 1 million previews they have for the, of other movies, right? And most of them you don't really care about, right? A movie preview simply shows you a preview of what's going to happen in the movie, what's going to happen in the story, and even how the movie might end. I believe that the church and that you and I, as followers of Jesus, we are to live our lives as a preview of that great day when Christ returns, right? That how we live our lives should be shaped by how the Christian story ends. Because the Christian story says there is coming a future day when God will make all things right. That when Christ returns, he will take all that is sad and broken and wrong in the world and it will be made whole and beautiful and right. And between now and that future day when Christ returns, we are called to wait in hope. We are called to be people of hope. I love how John Mark Comer defines hope. He's a pastor and he says this, hope is the expectation of coming good based on the promises and person of God. Right? Hope is the expectation of coming good based on the person and promises of God. The word hope is used over 150 times in the Bible. And if you're new to reading the Bible, you want to grow in biblical literacy, always pay attention to what gets repeated in the scriptures because God is trying to stir your affections and draw your attention to that theme. And God wants to draw our attention to this theme of hope and that oftentimes that word hope is actually connected to Christ's return, his second coming. In fact, in the Old Testament, 17 books mention Christ's return. In the New Testament, I have 27 books, 23 of them mention Christ's return. So much of the Bible is talking about the glorious day that one day God will come back and make all things right. And I don't think we actually pay attention to this in our Bibles. I think we actually miss out on this repeated theme of hope and Christ's second coming because we're not even looking for it. We're not even thinking about it. And guess what? We are missing out on the faith that God has for us. We are missing out on a greater intimacy in spirituality with Christ. And so for four weeks this Advent, we're gonna focus on the return of Christ, on his second coming, because here's what we believe and here's our deepest prayer as a church. We believe that if we spend four weeks 
thinking and praying and meditating on Christ's return and the hope, peace, joy, and love that that gives us, I believe, and we believe, that will create a deeper longing in our heart for Christ. It will create a deeper passion and zeal in our hearts and our lives for Jesus, that we will long for the things that God longs for. We will see the world as it is, and we will long for a day when God will come and make it right. So we want to spend four weeks pressing into this theme because we believe it will deepen our faithfulness today. Amen, saints? Amen. And so that's what we're going to be doing the next few weeks. And so this morning we'll be in John 14 and Romans chapter 8. And if you hear nothing else I say today, I just want you to hear this one truth, that we are a people of hope because we worship a God of hope. That we are a people of hope because we worship a God of hope. That, that you and I, in our own strength, we're not hopeful, right? You and I are inadequate, weak. We do not control our destiny. We cannot write our own story. But there is one who can. And he is the God of hope. And he calls us to worship and serve him faithfully. And so today we want to explore what it means to be a people of hope because we worship a God of hope. And so John 14, verse one says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why would Jesus say that? Why would he say, do not let your hearts be troubled? We're just a chapter earlier. Jesus had said some things that actually troubled the disciples' hearts. Just a chapter before he said, hey, I'm about to go away. I'm gonna go to the Father and I'm gonna go to the cross. So I'm about to leave you. That troubled their hearts. Jesus has also just said that, hey, one of you will betray me and one of you will deny me and abandon me, right? His closest friends would betray him, deny him and abandon him. And as Jesus shares that, the disciples' hearts are troubled. And I don't think the disciples are alone in having troubled hearts. I think you and I at times can have troubled hearts, right? What troubles your heart? Is it money that troubles your heart? Is it politics that troubles your heart? Is it your career or your lack of a career that troubles your hearts? Is it your family that troubles your hearts? Is it relationships or lack of relationships that troubles your heart? What troubles your heart? That word trouble, it can mean to distress, to agitate. Or I love one definition that said, an inward riot of worry and anxiety. How many of you ever experienced an inward riot of worry and anxiety? I know I'm not alone, right? Uh, this past few days, my wife and I and daughter, we were up in Dallas for Thanksgiving. Uh, and at grandma and grandpa's house, there was not any room because there's so many nieces. And so we ended up staying at a friend's house. And when you take a toddler to a friend's house, uh, toddlers often go through every room in the house, open every drawer and every cabinet in the house just to see what's in there, right? And as toddlers do, that's what my toddler did. And she found a small, tiny Bible in one of the drawers. And she said, hey, daddy, will you read me the Bible? Hey, parents, by the way, if your children express uh, interest in the Bible and Jesus, fan that flame, right? So I was like, yes, honey, I will gladly read you the Bible. And so I opened to John 14 and I read her, John 14, what Jesus says. And I just asked her the question, hey, is your heart ever troubled? Is your heart ever worried? And she said, yes. 
And I was like, oh, we're doing this conversation now. Okay, let's do it. Uh, so what troubles your heart? And she said, I didn't want to sleep in the pack and play. I wanted to sleep with mommy and daddy. And so last night my heart was racing. Right? If a toddler's heart races at a pack and play, our hearts can also race and be troubled too. Jesus says, do not be troubled, right? I think when we've experienced racing hearts, worried hearts, troubled hearts, what do we do? We tend to look for relief. We look for someone or something to, to give us hope. We look for someone or something to give us uh, an anchor point, to give us stability and assurance. And so what we do is we run to things that sometimes give us a false sense of hope and security, right? That if I just get that next promotion, my life will be better. That if I just get that next relationship, my life will be better. And, and please hear me, those things can be good things. And those things can be gifts from the Father. But those things will ultimately disappoint you. Because none of those things can bear the weight of the promises they make. But there is one who can, and his name is Jesus. Look at verse two. Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. That word believe there, often we think about that as, as understanding a truth, and, and that is absolutely true. But that word believe can also mean trust or have faith. Jesus says, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you have faith in me? Your hearts are troubled. Do you believe and trust in me? Do you believe that I can do what I say I can do, right? Trust, faith, and hope, they go hand in hand. Jesus says, have faith that as I go away, I'm preparing a better future for you, Jesus says, right? You can't have hope without faith because hope without faith is just a Hallmark card, right? Jesus says, hope and faith and trust, they're intermingled and they go together. Think about this. Optimism is choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. Biblical hope is focused on a person and his promises, right? In fact, the hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there is no evidence for them to have hope. Think of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis. God says, y'all are old, but I'm gonna bless you with a son. You're not just old, old, you're old as dead type thing. And he says, there's no evidence for you to have a son, yet I'm going to do it anyway. Biblical hope is not based on circumstances or outcomes. Biblical hope is always grounded in a person and in the promises. Believing that God will do what he says he will do despite the circumstances around you, right? Hope is believing God is faithful, that his promises are true, and that he is at work for his glory and your good. His promises are true. He is faithful and he is at work, right? Optimism is wishful thinking. Hope is worshipful thinking. And there is a huge difference between those two. Optimism is wishing things will get better. Hope is worshipful. Hope is saying, God, I trust you even though I have no reason to trust you. I trust you even though everybody around me says I'm crazy. Even though the circumstances say it won't happen, hope is worshipful. Are you optimistic or are you worshipful? Which one are you? 
because you only have one choice. Think about this. On this night in John 14, Jesus was betrayed. He's about to die. Literally later in the story, he sweats blood. And his disciples, instead of praying for him, rallying around him, encouraging, supporting him, what do they do? They worry about their troubled hearts and their futures. I believe troubled hearts has a way of narrowing your focus just to yourself. But hope has a way of widening your focus onto God and his faithfulness and his promises, right? Trouble narrows your focus on you, but hope widens it on God, right? Hope widens our focus on God, right? God is faithful and he's true to his promises. And so what sustains our troubled hearts is the past faithfulness of God to us. So he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. Have faith in my faithfulness and promises to you, Jesus says. And why can he say this? Well, he tells us in verse three that he has a better future planned, right? Verse three says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. And you also may be where I am. Jesus is giving hope. That's who he is. It's in his nature. Despite all the bad news facing the disciples, he gives them hope. He holds hope out in his hands. And the hope he gives is that one day he will come back and that he's speaking of his second coming and he will make a better future for them and for us, right? Later in the story, it says that, Jesus says that it's for your good that I'm going away. Think about that. It's for their benefit that he is leaving. Oftentimes, I think God uses the things that trouble our hearts the most to sanctify us and grow us, right? That challenge, God wants to grow you. So every time you see a trouble, a challenge, or a worry spot, say, this is my opportunity to grow in the Lord right? This is my opportunity to grow. This is my opportunity to be sanctified. This is my opportunity to depend on the Lord more, to seek him more earnestly, to desire his presence more fully. Every opportunity and worry is a chance to grow in the Lord. Do we see it that way, right? God's overwhelming desire is to be with you. He says, I will come back to be with you. Right from the very first page of the Bible to the very last page is the great theme of God's desire to be with his people. Think about this. When Matthew is writing the birth story of Jesus, he says, Jesus will be Emmanuel, God with us. That his very title and name says he wants to be with you. Do you believe it? Like not just words on a page, do you at your core, at a soul level, believe that God wants to be with you? Not, not just near you or hang around you, but that God desires closeness and intimacy with you. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus says, at present, your hearts are troubled, but I am coming back for you and creating a better future for you. So wait in hope until I return. And I think, man, so many of us, we struggle with this idea of waiting. Am I alone? No, right? I think there's actually four types of waiting that we experience as humans. The first is the anxious type of waiting, right? You're waiting for that doctor to call you back, to tell you the results of that scan or test. 
And in that waiting, we're anxious, right? The second type of waiting is impatient waiting, that we're wanting to get to our destination quicker, right? Uh, Driving back on I-35 on Friday, I believe every slow driver in North Texas conspired together to be on the road at the exact same time I was and to only go 45 miles an hour, right? I was impatiently waiting to get to my destination, right? I'm the type of guy that I'm in the HEB checkout line and I look over and go, could I save 10 seconds by changing lanes? Even though it's going to take me 11 seconds to change lanes, I still think that, right? I'm impatient, right? We can be anxious waiters, impatient waiters. We can also experience exhausting waiting, that we've been waiting so long, we wonder if it's worth throwing in the towel. We wonder if it's worth giving up on God. We wonder if our faith even matters, that if, even if he sees us, right? There's exhausted waiting. But I think there's a fourth type of waiting that God calls us to. It's hopeful waiting. God calls us to hopeful waiting, believing that his promises are true and persevering in the faith despite their circumstances. God calls us to hopeful waiting. It's what he invites us to as his followers, as sons and daughters, right? That God wants to give us a hope-filled future, but he calls us to wait and trust in him until he arrives again, right? He says, if you trust me enough to save your soul, will you trust me enough to carry your soul to glory? Right? Think about this. In justification, we are made right with God. In sanctification, we are made holy with God. And in glorification, we spend eternity with him. If we trust him to justify us and sanctify us, will he not also glorify us in heaven? Do you believe that he will carry your soul to glory? Do you trust and believe? Jesus says, if you trust me, trust me, believe in me, believe in my promises, I will come back for you and I'm creating a better future for you. He says in verse two, my father's house has many rooms. And if that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? This phrase, father's house, Jesus has only used it one other time in the gospels when he describes the temple in Jerusalem. That in the ancient world, the temple was the center of spiritual life in ancient Israel that the temple was the center of social life in Israel. It was the, temple, it was the center of uh, religious and political life in Israel. And, and the Israelites believed that at the temple is where heaven and earth met and interconnected, and that God's presence dwelled in the temple. And here Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house, and he's preparing rooms for you. Jesus is speaking of a new house, of a new city, of a new temple, if you will. He's speaking of a new creation. He's speaking of the heavens and the earth that will be uh, renewed and restored, right? He's hinting at a new world where his glory will not just dwell in the temple, but it will fill the entire creation. And he says, there is room for you in my father's house. And I know in a room this size, there might be some of you that you're actually, you're skeptical of Jesus, or maybe you don't believe in him, or maybe you think there's something you've done that prevents you from being a part of the family of God, right? Look at me right here. There is no mistake you've made. There is no sin that you've committed. And there is no shame that you've experienced that nullifies the grace of God in your life. 
If you place your faith in Christ, Jesus says, there's room in my father's house. There's room in the family of God. Turn to your neighbor and say, there's room in the family of God. No, don't mumble it. Say it like you mean it. Turn to your neighbor and say, there's room for you in the family of God. Right? Maybe you mumble it because you don't want that person to be in the family of God. But anyway, that's a hard thing you got to work on. Right? Jesus says, there's room for you in my Father's house if you believe. I'm going away. I'm preparing that place for you. Trust me. I promise I will come back for you. Right? The Apostle Paul says almost the exact same thing in Romans 8. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Here, Paul is talking about the new heavens and the new earth. He's talking about eschatology, which is simply just about heaven and hell and the afterlife and resurrection and new heavens and new earth. That's what Paul is talking about here. And he's saying, hey, there is coming a day that there's a glorious day that we can long for and have hope in, right? This idea of what Paul's doing here, it teaches us two truths, that we can have hope for this day that sustains us now, and it changes how we live our lives today, right? Eschatology does two things. It gives us hope and ethics, hope for the day to come and how to live today. And so Paul begins to unpack this idea of a new heavens and a new earth, that the hope, the glorious hope we have in Christ, right? Now, maybe some of you, you grew up in a church that, that didn't ever talk about the new heavens and the new earth and afterlife and resurrection, or maybe you grew up in a church that had some malnourished theology around this, Thinking the idea of what 2 Peter 3, where the world's going to burn, that's not what's happening there. Peter's talking about a refinement, purification. What Paul is saying is there is coming a day when God will make all things right and we can place our hope in him and our hope in that day. I think for many of us, as we think about this idea of heaven and afterlife, it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around because we often think about souls in heaven on clouds playing harps that are out of tune with a never-ending worship service, right? That's, that's not what God is describing here in the Bible and what Paul is describing in Romans 8, right? The language that the Bible uses to talk about that glorious day is words like renewal, restoration, unity, liberation, freedom, redemption, of all things, of all creation, even our bodies, as Romans 8 says, right? That is the world to come that Jesus is describing and Paul is describing, right? Heaven can be hard to imagine, but maybe we can imagine a a different way. Maybe we can imagine that there's coming a world where there's no more starving children. Maybe we can imagine a world where there's no more war. Maybe we can imagine a world where there's no more hostility because of the color of your skin. Maybe we can imagine a world where our loved ones don't get cancer and die. 
right? Maybe we can imagine a world where there's no prisons and homeless shelters, that everything is right and whole and beautiful, where everything that is broken is made whole, where everything that is marred is made beautiful, because that's the future Romans 8 is describing for us, saints. That's the hope we have in Christ. That is God's better future he is designing for us. And so we should long for the day when cancer will not have the last word over you. We should long for the day when our loved ones don't die too soon. We should long for the day when depression no longer has the last word over us, when anxiety no longer has the last word over you, where grief no longer has the last word over you. Because on that day, on that glorious day, when Jesus returns, he will have the final word over you. And his word is hope. His promises are true. Our hope is in him. He is coming back. And so he calls us to wait until then. Paul Gazzani says the whole creation has been groaning, has been longing for this day. Do you long for that day too? Do you groan for that day too, right? Or is creation, the rocks and the trees groaning for that day more than you, right? Jesus says that if you don't worship me, the rocks will cry out and worship me. I wonder if that's true for us when it comes to this idea of hoping for the day of Jesus returns, right? Is creation groaning for it more than you and I are? Paul says, we're to groan for it. We're to long for it. We're to seek it and pray for it. Here's why. When we long for it, it stirs our affection for Jesus. When we pray for it, it changes how we see the world around us. When we ask God to make the wrong things right in the world, it shifts our perspective off of us onto heaven and onto Christ. That's where our perspective is always supposed to be, on Christ and the world to come. Jesus says, I am coming back for you and I am making a new creation. There's there's rooms in my father's house for you if you believe. And Paul says that we ourselves have the first fruits of the spirit, right? That word first fruits is probably not something you used at your Thanksgiving table this past week, right? It's a word we don't use that often. But in the ancient world, the farming world, a farmer, when the heads of grain would begin to emerge, he would take them and that farmer had three options. He could either take that grain and uh, bake bread for his family. He could take that grain and save it for a rainy day. Or he could take that grain and offer it to the Lord, saying, God, I trust you that there is more to come. And here Paul says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is given to us to to comfort us, to guide us, to convict us of sin, to illumine our hearts and minds in the Scriptures, to, to protect us, to point us to Jesus. But the Holy Spirit is also given as a down payment of a future glory, right? God has placed the Spirit in you if you believe, not only to help you battle sin, and convict and comfort and guide, but also as a promise saying that, hey, what I've begun, I will finish, right? Just like when you put a down payment down on a house, you're promising to buy the rest. Here, God is saying, I've given you the down payment, which is my spirit. And I promise to continue the work I began. Hope in me, believe in me, trust in me. Verse 25, he says this, but if we have But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I hate that verse and I so need that verse, right? This is a word of challenge, I think, for our generation, right? Waiting in hope takes patience. And this is not something we passively do and sit back. Patience requires active presence, 
requires activity in the waiting, right? So how do we actively practice hope between now and that glorious day when Christ returns? So I want to give you four thoughts as we wrap up. First is this, look for the goodness of God in your life today. Psalm 27 says, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living here now. So wait for the Lord, the psalmist says. Be strong and take heart. Meaning we can experience the goodness of God while we wait for Christ's return, right? Hope stirs up faithfulness in us as we think about that glorious day. And so take our eyes off of ourselves and see the goodness God is already doing around us and praise him for that. Because when you praise him for that, your heart doesn't feel as troubled because you're no longer thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the one who authors your life and is in control of all things. Amen. Second, meditate on his promises for life today. That remembering his past faithfulness spurs our present hope. How has God been faithful to you over the last five months? Like, like genuinely spend time this week thinking about how God has demonstrated his faithfulness to you. Memorize scriptures, memorize his promises. So when you find yourself with a troubled heart, you can remind yourself what is true that he is faithful, that he's been faithful to you and he will be faithful to you in the future. So look for God's goodness in your life. Meditate on his promises today. Third, rehearse hope communally. Rehearse hope communally. I will never forget um, being at my son's funeral and being there for the celebration of life service. And the worship pastor at the time, in the middle of the service, he looked at my wife and I and he said, I would imagine today you don't know how to pray. I would imagine today you don't know how to believe the promises of God. I would imagine today you don't know how to worship God. Let us pray on your behalf. Let us believe the promises on your behalf. Let us worship God on your behalf because hope is done communally, ladies and gentlemen. God wants us to rehearse hope communally with one another. So who in your life needs hope? Who in your life needs prayer? Who in your life needs worship? Be that for them. And again, the focus is not on you. It's the God of hope because we worship the God of hope, right? Fourth, be a hope bearer. You and I are called to be a foretaste of the kingdom to come. You and I are not just kingdom people in the future. God calls us kingdom people now. So how can you bear hope and restoration and reconciliation and goodness and mercy to the people around you today? God calls you to be a hope bearer until that great day comes. That is the, that's what it means to actively wait, to look for his goodness, to memorize scripture and focus on his promises, to rehearse hope communally and to be a hope bearer. Amen? Okay, John 14, let's go back there real quick. Jesus says this in verse four. He says, you know the way to where I'm going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Right, this isn't doubting Thomas. This is directionally confused Thomas here. And so Jesus responds by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What's Jesus saying? He's been telling his disciples that he will come back for them, that he's creating a better future, and that his death doesn't just show us a hope beyond death, 
how he lived show us there's a better hope in him, right? That Christ is our hope. He is the way we have new access to God. He is the one that gives us life now and life eternity. That in Christ, there is hope because he himself embodies hope perfectly, right? Jesus does all of the work in this passage. He's the one that goes. He's the one that comes back. He's the one that brings them. He's the one that is with us. Jesus is the one who does all the work on our behalf. He's our greatest example. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises of hope. He embodies it. And now he calls us and empowers us to wait patiently in hope until that glorious day comes. And so friends, I don't know what's troubling your heart today. I have no idea what you walked into carrying, what's causing your heart to race. But I do know this. There is one who knows you, who sees you, and loves you. And he invites you to place your hope in him, to believe in his promises, believing that one day he will make it all right. And until that day comes, we wait patiently. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. So Lord, you are so good to us. You are so kind to us that we have hope and that we can worship you because you are a God of hope. And so Lord, wherever people are today, spiritually, emotionally, wherever it is, Lord, I pray that you would meet them there. I pray that you would demonstrate your goodness. Even now, Lord, call to mind the ways in which you've been faithful to your people. Lord, like right now, call to mind the ways that you have shown grace to people, even today, the ways you've shown goodness to them. Lord, we pray that would stir our own faithfulness and love for you because you are so worth it, Jesus. You are worth all of our affection and our attention and all of our devotion because you are our greatest hope. Christ, we pray. Amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.